0: welcome back to the podcast i am recording this intro into my phone today because i am sitting in a beautiful place it's kind of like a sandbar but it's rocks small to medium-sized river rocks um there's this little rock bar gravel bar in the middle of the uh Clark Fork River um, is a spot that we found last year and hung out here for a while, thinking we might actually buy land up here. Uh, And we've returned because, you know, there are just those like few spots that stand out among the rest, and this was definitely one of them. And there's this really amazing little spot out in the middle of the river uh that up until this time last year we didn't do this but we've been sitting out here and having our coffee in the morning and getting some vitamin d some covid medicine that good good covid medicine and uh yeah i decided i was gonna sit out here and just record my intro easy peasy into the phone so if it sounds a little different or kind of shittier i'm sorry but It's worth it. Um, Today I am bringing you an episode with Sarah Kerr, who is a death doula who I was connected with uh, through my good friend Jenny Kellogg, who was also on the podcast a few episodes back. If you have not listened to Jenny's episode, I highly recommend doing so. Jenny left me a 30-minute voice memo, I think that's how long it was, the other day about um centaurs and a centaur called therius and i swear it was so interesting and mesmerizing and relaxing to listen to that i just wanted to release it as a podcast episode so maybe i'll have to have jenny back on to talk to us about the mythology of centaurs um anyway uh sarah kerr right that's what i was talking about uh i was actually going to release a different episode today about um white shamanism that i recorded with my friend leah i i've decided that in the intro to that episode i'm gonna rate something um just to sort of speak a little bit more clearly and personally and eloquently about some of the things i tend to think about when it comes to topics of power and sexuality um obviously these are things that i speak a lot about especially in my other podcast Horror Rapport. Um, and I think there's just a lot. I mean, obviously, obviously these things have been going on for a really long time when it comes to older, powerful men with younger women. And what are the sexual eros dynamics that occur and take place within those dynamics? And what is it all bad? Is it partially bad? What part is healthy? What part is toxic? Um these things have been going on forever but uh obviously sort of pop up into the culture prominently from time to time um certainly now is one of those times starting with the me too movement and there's been a lot of talk of these types of issues swirling around the astrology community right now um and I've definitely had a lot of personal experiences um with these different things and Knowing uh, who I am, I I don't just want to say what everyone's saying, and I don't just want to take the easy way out, and I really want to think clearly about how I express myself around everything, but this specifically because I am so fascinated by it and passionate about it. So all of that to say, that was the episode I was planning on releasing today, but I have not completed the piece that I'm writing, and um, I wanted to bring you an episode as soon as possible, so. We're doing Sarah today and uh, I'm actually glad we're doing it because in listening back to this uh, a couple days ago I realized how good of a follow-up it is to um, the episode I released last with the Jungians. Um, It's another one of those situations. I know I'm like a broken record about this but I always feel a, a, a sort of bit of guilt when I don't release podcasts on a weekly basis and I think i'm failing all of you and not living up to my (laughs) the promise that i've made to nobody i guess but my myself my inner perfectionist self um anyway i always get nervous that uh that i'm failing somehow and yet i was really glad that that episode got to sort of live at the top of my podcast feed for so long um I don't know really why. I think maybe I was on my friend Kyle Tierman's podcast, so some people came over, but I'm still getting such great feedback from that show, and I'm sort of glad it's just parked itself there for a few weeks and allowed everyone to listen to it because it was so meaningful, I think especially for those of you who listen to this show, those of you in my generation who are going through personal and or collective dark nights of the soul or have in the past or expect ones coming up. Um, if you haven't checked out that episode, highly recommend it. And if you have, uh, this is a tremendous follow-up. Um, before I get into my intro and before we get into this conversation, I wanted to cover some housekeeping. Um, one is to remind everyone that uh, the book club has officially been announced. Um, I'm really excited to to do this. We're going to read Breeding Sweetgrass in August. Um, each book club, I think I'm going to do them four times a year, although don't hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure that's doable. And each time I'll select a theme, uh, this time it was sort of nature and ecology and humans role within that system. So I picked four books, all of which, uh, previous podcast guests have recommended. So I want to do that every time. I want to read a book that one of the podcast guests has recommended. Um, so I'll pick four within a theme. My patrons at the $10 a month level and above will get to vote on which book they want. Um, and then we'll read that book within a month. Obviously, you can read the book in a day or two months if you have that much notice or if you've read the book already. And then we're going to all get together on a live Zoom call at the end of the month, probably sometime in this case in early September, and we'll discuss it Um I I assume that as I keep doing these book clubs that they'll become a bit more organized maybe in you know what types of things I I want people to think about or that we can all discuss when we get together but this time we're just going to see how it goes so if you would like to be a part of the book club um All you have to do is become a patron at the $10 level. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Anya Katz, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. And uh, I would love for you to become a patron for as long as you'd like to um, and support this podcast if you find it valuable. But if you would just like to be a part of the book club and that's all you really want to do, I have no issue with you just signing up on patreon um for ten dollars between now and the end of august and participating in the book club so as long as you've been a patron at that level for at least one month like you've paid for a month um by the end of august by the time we do the zoom call you are very welcome to participate um and of course if you remain a patron there are lots of other benefits as well um I release a book list uh, with all the books that everyone's ever recommended on the podcast all in one place for patrons. I release different uh, playlists. I have two that I just finished that I'm going to release. And the other really exciting thing that I had an epiphany about the other day is I've had this WhatsApp group chat for patrons. There are, I think, 32 members in this group that I created And uh, you gain access to it again at that $10 level, um, $10 a month. And at first I thought, oh shit, you know, I don't want to overwhelm anyone with a group chat and have like 100 people in there. So I'm just going to limit it to 30 people. But then it made me feel badly because more people are going to sign up on Patreon at that same level to get access to the book club and all the other perks. And they don't get access to that group chat. And as I've seen over the past couple of months or so that group chat has been so amazing and valuable to me and to everyone in it and it's become a really great source of community and support for one another especially I mean always I talk about this it's so hard to find like-minded people and especially now when we're all in our homes and scared and not working and not going out it's even more challenging but having this WhatsApp chat has allowed um, us all to connect in A time that feels like the perfect time for us to do so so all of that to say I am just gonna create multiple whatsapp group chats right why didn't I think of this so I'm gonna keep each group to 30 people the first one got up to 32 just because I did not think of this idea in time and I wanted to sort of grandfather in a couple people that had signed up a bit ago but we already have two members for the second group, so if you're curious about joining um, a little pod, a podcast pod, um, of 30 people who listen to this show, um, please sign up on Patreon and uh, we'll get you added. So, yeah, I think that's all the, all the housekeeping I have. Um, Patreon.com slash Anya cots uh if you don't want to participate in any of that and you want an easier way to support the podcast another amazing super helpful thing to do is to go into itunes and uh hit subscribe that way you know when a new episode comes out every week and uh, also leave uh some stars and a review that helps the podcast show up a lot more in search results and makes the podcast look more legit so that when i reach out to people to come on the show Uh, It looks like it's worth their while. All right. So what I wanted to talk about today before I get into this conversation with Sarah, I had this thought recently while driving in the van in some beautiful place, as is the norm. I started to think a lot about something I've definitely talked about on this podcast before, which is this kind of sense of responsibility that I've felt around staying in America through all of this turmoil and transition that I believe we've only just seen the very start of. And, you know, I felt like I wanted to find a little patch of land and gather all my friends together and create some sort of Noah's Ark to keep us afloat while things change those changes i have no idea how intense they're going to be but my guess is pretty intense and we will be able to show other people that even within this country even within this time that we can live well or at least more well than the system uh is can afford us um and I understand this perspective, and I still feel this way in many respects. But I started to wonder whether my holding out and my wanting to stay here and fight the good fight and see it through to the end, even if when I die, you know, we're still in transition, that I will have made some sort of difference and accomplished something. And I started to wonder whether that was grief avoidant. You know, I could imagine if... I could imagine I have gone through a divorce and living in a house that I own. And it's funny because this is exactly what I thought of when I first got divorced. Like, oh, fuck, okay, I'm just gonna end this relationship sign those papers, and then I'm going to continue living the exact same life I was before, just minus that relationship in this house. And that wasn't a realistic perspective. And not only did I very quickly realize I didn't really want to live in that house anymore, I didn't really want the life back that I was living with or without that relationship. But I think we have a tendency to hold on. And not hold on, because something is worth holding on to but because we're fearful of losing it and often i think when we're fearful of losing something or fearful in general what we're afraid of is feeling a specific type of emotion i'll tell this story again because i think it is impactful and meaningful because I know a lot of you don't listen to every single podcast. So for those of you that do and hear these stories repeated, hopefully their repetition is useful. Um, but when I I decided to stop seeing my therapist, I don't know when this was, a year or so ago. And it was, she was wonderful. And the time we had together was, I am I can't even say a word to explain how important and impactful my time with her was. But it became very clear that it was time to transition and I was afraid to tell her this because I have a personal fear of people being mad at me and um, so I was afraid to express it to her but I finally did and you know I was like how do I make this not as intense as it feels that it is and you know she said something to me like well how does it make you feel that our time together is ending? And I very quickly shot back, well, it's not ending. I I can very much see myself coming back here or talking to you over Skype. So I don't really think it's ending. I think it's just that for the moment, I'm going to stop seeing you regularly. And she looked at me and just said straightforwardly, well, but don't you think that perspective is avoiding any emotion you might have around this? Which of course it was. And within a matter of seconds, I started crying because there were a lot of feelings there. And she was right. Like, of course, I was right. Of course, I could go back to see her. Of course, this wasn't like the end of all ends. And she was going to disappear into the universe or something. She's there. We've texted. Um, I haven't had another session with her, but I imagine that I could. But all of that aside, the fact was that was a big moment. Me leaving that office, having been in there two to three times a week for the previous year and a half, was a big deal. And I had tons of emotion around it. I had sadness around it. I had, you know, grief. I had fear. I had love. There was a lot going on. And my kind of quick like, oh, well, but this is here's the logical intellectual reaction to this totally just jumped over all of the feelings. And I definitely have a tendency to do that. I, I think those of us who are logical and intelligent often, you know, we almost hurt ourselves with that sometimes sometimes. We can keep ourselves in pretty bad situations or avoid a whole host of emotions because we're really good at talking our way out of things. You know, we have an answer to everything. If anyone challenges us, if we challenge ourselves, we can intellectually debate anything (laughs) that we want. So anyway, going back to my feeling around America... You know, I thought that my, my perspective around I'm gonna stick it out. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to create this kind of utopian world within <laughs> the decaying one. I think that's all fine. I think that's okay. If that's what I choose to do, then that's totally acceptable and worthwhile, But I felt like it was really time for me to face whatever grief I might have about the fact that this home that I know may cease to exist or may prove to be uninhabitable to me. And I think especially those of us who are more liberal minded, who recognize the Brave injustices that this country was founded on. I think that's another way that we use our intelligence to avoid emotion. Because it's so easy for us to be like, yeah, burn it down. We need a new country anyway. This shit sucks, you know? We can rally around these ideals, which again are totally legitimate and true. For those of us who were born here, I mean, I've definitely lived abroad as well, but this was the country I was born into. And although I didn't really believe the, like, America is the greatest shit, it's still sad. It's still, you know, when when we were literally first born, like, we didn't ask for this. We didn't ask to be plopped into a a, a country and a system founded on injustice and genocide and colonialism and racism and patriarchy we did not that's not what our bodies our souls expected that was a shock and so we've had to adjust to that in whatever way that we have we've you know Either I think there are people that just blindly accept that that's the right way to be, or there are those of us, pretty sure, all of you that listen to this podcast, that have rallied against it and seen the ways in which it wasn't fair. But both of those are avoidant of sadness. And that's the other thing that this Western culture that we live in does. It's really keen on um, not allowing us to feel grief there are no communal support networks there's no cultural there's there's just no part of our culture that embraces that and obviously I've tried to bring a lot of that awareness to this podcast um Francis Weller this uh show today for sure the one uh, last couple weeks ago with the Jungian Analysts we need more spaces to communally grieve and hold each other within this pain but it's certainly not something we're given easily we have to fight for it we have to seek it so I want all of you that are listening to reflect on what it means to lose a home what it means to have not been given the home you deserved you know I think this country, all countries, we could be good. It, they could hold us. They could support us. I understand the limitations in that and the greed and the, just how intertwined we are with so many things we don't understand and can't seem to extricate ourselves from. But there is, a, there is something in our bodies, I think, that remembers what it was like to feel held and supported and seen and listened to. And we didn't get that. And there's a lot of anger now and a lot of frustration and a lot of rage and a lot of some of us hero complexes, certainly me, (laughs) where it's a survival mechanism and we need those and they're important. But it's not everything. There is still great sadness in loss. We may not be able to do what we want to do I mean, for fuck's sake, the whole planet could burn. It's incredibly painful. I'm sitting here in this spot. It's a fucking beautiful spot. We've come here, this is the third time now. And two out of the three times we arrive, and there's just fucking trash everywhere. I had to dig out the campfire the other day because it was so full of ash. But it really wasn't ash. I was digging out broken glass pieces of broken beer bottles one after the other after the other I mean it literally sounded like I was digging into a pile of glass that's how much there was there there's fucking diapers thrown in the woods empty bags of chips cans bottle caps I got mad, and I get angry about that, and I clean it up. But it's fucking sad. It's sad that there are so many people that have no idea what a beautiful, magnificent, magical place they live in. Or how magical it could be if they helped. It's like there's a fucking brick wall between certain people's minds and the mind and the heart and the soul of the planet which of course there isn't I mean I don't know what's more upsetting like picking up the cans or thinking about the people that left the cans (laughs) so that can be applied and as broad of a context as you'd like it to and I know we're all angry, and I think we all need that anger to move us forward and to make changes and to jump off cliffs and to do things that scare us. This is 100% the time for that. But we're not going to be able to do that honestly or in a way that inspires others or in a way that creates true change if we neglect the emotional piece. I felt this even when I... I had to evacuate my apartment when I lived in Topanga. And, you know, of course, at first there was the holy shit, there's a wildfire. I need to pack up my car with the things that matter to me. And there's, you know, the sort of anxiety and um, uh, panic that fuels you through that. And then eventually I just sat in my car and cried i think i probably cried for an hour just like okay so let's think about what it would mean if i lost all of that and and my apartment burned down and i cried and i cried and i i I really feel like i let so much go just in the process of feeling that emotion and i was out of my apartment for eight nine days and when i got back first of all part of me was kind of disappointed the thing didn't burn down honestly like I've already grieved the loss of this and now I have to deal with all this junk that I still own but I feel like because I grieved you know of course this was not just grieving things it was grieving the loss of something symbolic right this home that I had now walking back into that home I I fully created a new chapter because I let go of the old one. Because I allowed myself to be undone in that way. I talk about this in so many different contexts all the time. You know, I think I have grieved the loss of relationships with people I was hoping to have. You know, talk about wanting to save something like my physical home You know, I've wanted to save people too. I had these wild fantasies that the person I loved, whether that was someone I was in a romantic relationship with, a parent, someone else in my family, these hopes that they were going to change, that I was going to save them, or that they were even going to save themselves, leave me out of it. But there was this fantasy projected ideal of who these people were that I was killing myself over to help them get there. And at a certain point, I had to just walk away from that, which meant they had to die in that form. You know, maybe they were always the same person, but they had to die in the way that I saw them. That shit's painful. You know, I think America, even if we're those people that have for so long seen how it was built on such injustice, I do think to some extent it has to die in order for it to be rebuilt. And now I can go back into my home in Topanga. I can go back into seeing my therapist. I can go back into relationships with these certain people and and start fresh. I'm no longer holding on to an ideal that doesn't exist. I'm no longer avoiding the pain of the fact that they are who they are and that they're probably not gonna change. I'm letting that go. I'm fucking crying. It doesn't mean I'm gonna leave forever. It doesn't mean their physical body is gone. You know, I'm gonna return, but it's gonna be returning in a different way. So maybe right now, although the anger is important, you know, I've said before, anger is a bridge, not a parking lot. Let the anger bring us to our emotion. Just cry fucking lie on the floor, lie on the ground on your own little patch of river rocks (laughs) in the middle of a river and just feel into that. I always was afraid if I let myself feel those feelings, I would never come back from them. I would get lost in them. They felt like a vortex. And they are a vortex. But a good one and when you come out of that which you will you can see clearly whatever it was you discovered within that vortex and that's how we keep waking up the other quick thing i want to mention before i wrap this episode up is uh yesterday i listened to kylie macbeth's podcast it's called the zura health podcast kylie was the first guest that i had on the show and uh, she's gone through quite a transition in her life over the past year and opened up about it and spoke honestly about it on her podcast for the first time and I can't tell you how beautiful and comforting and supportive it feels to hear other women on such similar journeys and such similar paths of awakening I mean Everything from toxic relationship patterns to embracing femininity and coming to terms with the patriarchal world that we live and how that's affected both men and women. There were so many parts of that that sounded so resonant to me. And I'm sure it would sound resonant to you. So please go check that out if you haven't. Um, I've chatted with Kylie a bit and would love to have her back on the show to talk about some more of these things because, yeah, just very much on the same page, feeling all that she's feeling. And I would love to support her and other women on this journey. So give that a listen. I think it's like something solo episode. You'll see it. So there's a plane flying overhead very rudely (laughs) interrupting my peace and quiet uh, and the winds kicking up a bit. So I don't want you to have horrific sound quality anymore. So I will um, let you all listen to this episode. I am going to play you in today with a song called Semolina by Slow Meadow. It's off an album called uh, Tragedy of the Commons, which I believe is named after uh, an article uh, written by an ecologist about the commons in uh, Great Britain. It used to be sort of like the forest service-ish, the wilderness in America, but great sort of swaths of open land that could be used by the public. And uh, they were saved and and preserved for that purpose. And then eventually uh, through arguments very much related to private property and patriarchy and agriculture, there was an argument made that if the lands were privately owned that they would be better kept and of course having come out of this intro with people people littering all over public-ish land um I can understand how that argument took flight a lot of these things that I sort of rally against I always understand why they occur um but I think it's a failure, as per usual, to embrace and see nuance. So maybe, yes, the tragedy of the commons, also the tragedy of, the, of common sense, the tragedy of our connection to all things around us. Um, tragedies, indeed. So on that uplifting note, um, please enjoy the song and the conversation, and I will catch you on the other end. I am here with Sarah, and I am really excited to have you on. Um, as I was just mentioning, and as my podcast listeners know, I always say, like, I'm really into grief, which is a weird thing to say. Um, but it's definitely true in my case. I uh, I found great value in delving into those um, types of realms. And uh, for me, I think they've involved both... Actual death, but also as we were talking about, sort of symbolic deaths as well. So, um, you are a death doula, which I think is probably something that not a lot of people are familiar with um, or know even exists. So, to start, I'd really love to hear about how you got into this work, what this work is, um, and whether that process for you of becoming interested in it and becoming a death doula was maybe challenging because of our culture's sort of lack of knowledge about, about death.
1: All my favorite topics. Um, (laughs) Thanks very much for having me. And yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to dig into that. So a death doula, people will know that a birth doula birth doulas often worth with birth midwives. They help babies come into the world. I help people leave the world. And the way I understand it is that when, um, uh, A child is growing inside someone. The child and that person are one. They're a single organism. And the act of being born is the act of separating. And it hurts, and it's messy, and it's painful. But it's also what makes life possible. And when someone dies, they are uh, inextricably connected with their community. That community is a single organism. And they need to separate, the community needs to let go. It's the same kind of separation process. It hurts, it's painful, can be messy, but it's also what makes life possible. So for me, those are birth and death are two gateways that are both held within the framework of life. It's birth and death that are opposite, not life and death. So that frames a little around the doula work. I've been doing this for, I'm not sure, Seven, eight, nine years, something like that, um, and got into it from a variety of different places. Um, one being that my father had a serious stroke, and he went from being really vigorous and healthy to being, you know, full on care in an institution when he stayed there for seven years until he died. And I was shocked and just really gobsmacked by how intense it was. And then on top of that, how unprepared I was. So these things, you know, there was a kind of death there, death of his his healthy life. They are hard, and they hurt, and they're confusing and overwhelming, but this, there seemed to be a double layer of pain and overwhelming and confusion because I hadn't been prepared for it. And so when he had that stroke, I really made a vow that I wasn't going to be surprised next time, mm-hmm. next time. So he was going to die, someone I loved was going to die, this was going to happen again. So... Yes, to your to your comment about, is it made more difficult by our cultural patterns? Absolutely. People get old and age and die all around us all the time. And I was in my mid-40s when my father had his stroke, and I was completely unprepared. And I was actually angry at the culture for having not prepared me for that process.
2: Hmm.
0: So what sort of, did you have training before in your life that sort of prepared you for this? Like, what was that? Did you change careers? Like, what was that whole transition um, or evolution for you in terms of doing this work?
1: I was, my father, my whole family lived in Canada. I was living in the Bay Area, going to school, doing a doctorate in transformative learning. And my my journey through that, I I started thinking I was going to write a pretty academic, pretty heady, pretty theoretical um, dissertation. And the system sort of squeezed me and scrunched me around enough until I actually was willing to explore my own experiences, my own personal process, which was a kind of dark night of the soul. Another way to frame that is an initiatory experience. Initiation is the, the archetypal pattern of a death, a transformational period and a rebirth, and I went through a really deep personal death and rebirth in my life around lots of things that were happening, um, and ended up exploring that in my dissertation work. So I'd been working really closely with the the archetypal patterns of initiation, mm. and it took me a while to sort of put all that together because I was a little overwhelmed. I was a lot overwhelmed by my dad's stroke, but that really gave me some skills for that, and. And I also had gone back to school. I'd been deeply involved in social justice organizing and anti-globalization protests, you know, seeing all... It's, it's Black Lives Matter time right now. That's when we're recording this. And seeing all those folks on the street and the tear gas and rubber bullets and dogs, I did a lot of that um, and had gone back to school because I wanted to look more deeply at how change happens and and really... So at the same time, I was having my own experience. I was having these bigger kind of insights around the political and social changes that there's another kind of death, transformative period, and rebirth that needs to happen. And so both of those are in parallel. They happen in our families, and they happen in our culture at a big level. And so I was weaving those ideas together. And I also had done a lot of studying in energy healing, different indigenous and shamanic healing practices, and ritual in particular. It was a whole bunch of things kind of put me together there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure the the work you do is probably like very multifaceted. I was sort of browsing through your website and it seems like there's lots of different ways to do this work, lots of different contexts in which to do it. Um, but if you could sort of give my listeners an overview of um, what this work looks like for you and the sort of types of um, initiations you're guiding people through, uh, whether that's an actual death or some sort of symbol, a symbolic uh, death?
1: Um, I, I often call myself clergy for the unchurched because the people who come to me are people who recognize that death is part of their soul's journey. They often say things like, I don't know why I'm calling you. I just know this needs to be sacred and I don't know how to do that. And so yeah. I, if you have a religious tradition, if you have a spiritual or cultural tradition that can guide you on that, you're in good shape. Lots of people don't. And so the people who come to me might classify themselves as spiritual but not religious, animist, uh, uh, nature-based spirituality, all those things. It's, it's a big tent, basically. Whatever language works for you, uh, that's, that's where I'll go. and whatever sort of principles Uh, So there are two parts of the work. One is the really pragmatic. How do you deal with that? How do you get prepared? How do you make a death plan? How do you mm, coordinate the death room? All those kinds of things. So I do that. But really what's, I think, richer and beyond that is helping people make the soul's journey through the process. What's happening at each level? So in an actual physical death, someone is dying, someone is leaving the web of physical community with other people, crossing to whatever the next realm of that is, and they're having a huge initiation. They're becoming whatever it is we become after we die. We can talk about some ideas around that. But everyone in the system is also having an initiation. You know, we have words for that. Orphan, widow, widower. You become someone new when someone you love dies. So it's helping each person adjust to that transformation. And so it can look like a sudden death, a expected slow aging or illness death. I work a lot with pet death. I work a lot, especially with younger folks, with, um, well, actually not just younger folks, with pregnancy loss, miscarriage, abortion, any kind of loss around that. Sometimes I do that work with people decades after it happened. So those are all, and, and also other kinds of unresolved deaths from the past. Those are all the actual physical bodily death parts. Mm-hmm. But then I end up having people come to me around bankruptcy, divorce, um, lost jobs, ending relationships, uh, sometimes starting something new. Getting married is the death of the single person. And there's a death and rebirth that happens there. So I, um, I, it's the same archetypal journey at a soul level, but it's cloaked in different experiences and it needs different ritual support to make it happen.
0: So, yeah, it's interesting what you said about how people call you and they sort of say like, I'm not really sure why or how, but I feel like this needs to be sacred, And I feel like this is a call I need to make. Um, I sometimes tell this story of when I, it actually started with a divorce, um, and moving out of my house and really totally changing my life. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, I was also going through like really a bunch of health issues. It was just all compounded. Um, and it was really horrible pretty quickly. And I know I'd never been that sad. I'd never been that confused. I'd never been that lost. And yet I had this total understanding and knowing that that this place was exactly where I was supposed to be, um, which was strange because I didn't really have a spiritual practice at all. I think I went on to find one, but at the time I really, it was like meaning in a wor- in a world that um, didn't ever really help me define what that meaning might be, I guess. Um, so I'm curious, I'm assuming that there are probably a lot of people that come to you with that sort of same, confusion. Like, do you feel like you end up often teaching people about meaning and spirituality sometimes as much as death itself?
1: Uh, That's, I mean, my, my doctorate is in transformative learning. And Mm. so that's what this is. This is, I am an educator, death education. And what I'm educating around is what's happening to you. And so that's what I was talking about in terms of like, there's the nuts and bolts part of what you do but then there's understanding the soul's journey and the greek word for soul is psyche and the greek word for butterfly is psyche and that's an understanding that that the journey that the caterpillar goes through before it becomes the butterfly is sort of by definition what the soul does again and again and again when we're growing developing evolving people we're constantly learning something new, letting go of who we were being kind of not sure for a bit and then finding something again. And then we let go of that and we become something else. And so that process of death and rebirth, you know, I I get a little speechless about how much I trust that archetypal wisdom. It is, it's, it's as, it's as real and as dependable as gravity. And I'm really excited to hear you say that you knew it was there. You could find it, and there must be something in your experience or in your upbringing that gave you that. Somewhere you got that. Often what I do for people is show them a map of where they are and help them get that. Once they get it and they understand, oh, this dark part, it's actually important. The caterpillar has to be in that cocoon. For a long time and they don't know what's happening and everything they knew is falling apart and they have no idea what's coming they can't understand that there's a butterfly that they're going to be the butterfly they just think oh my god it's all over it's all over you know and the classic image of that is a um, you know these these two twins in the womb having a conversation and one of them says oh it's warm and cozy in here i love it i never want to leave and the other one says you know i heard there's something good on the other side The other says, no, 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 nothing can be better than this. You know, we don't know what's what's available for us. I think death is a bit the same. We don't actually know what's on the other side, but I think it's actually pretty good. Hard, painful, lots of loss. But yeah, those archetypal energies are both in us and they hold us. And we can really rely on them as a map to tell us how to navigate these processes.
0: So in terms of this dark place, um, Which, you know, interesting for me was like also the place in which I understood concepts of gratitude for the first time, which was like the place in which I sort of felt almost the most joy and love sort of just in a container of of grief and sorrow. Um, I think that period of time is you know, often uncomfortable for people. I would probably argue mostly just because there's such a lack of education around it. Um, And then I think it makes people who are around them uncomfortable too, because they don't really know how to engage in that, in that place. Um, But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about like that, um, that darkness and um, what you've sort of seen people discover there. And and even I mean this is a compounded question, but um, how avoidance of that darkness can often affect us in other aspects of our of our lives.
1: Ooh, compound question with so many answers. Um, <laughs> so okay, um, if I heard you right, I think you said something about you know maybe that uncomfortableness is because we don't know how to deal with it. I actually think. The discomfort is a fundamental and required part of the process. Mm. We're not going to go through these journeys without being uncomfortable. The problem is that we don't have any cultural tools for being uncomfortable. You know, Bruce Coburn, great Canadian musician, has a line. He said, ask anyone who can recall. It's horrible to be born. I mean, you're squeezed through this (laughs) tiny little hole. It hurts. (laughs) Right. Um, So... It does hurt. It is uncomfortable. And, you know, you you said some great thing also at the beginning about um, I'm really into grief. And the wisdom in that for me is that grief and love are two sides of the same coin. Grief and joy um, could be in there. Love and joy are pretty related. You can't actually have one without the other. And so by making space for and appreciating The value of grieving and discomfort, we also make space for an equal amount of love. The amount of grief we can hold in our life is the limiting factor for how much joy and love we can hold. And so that dark period, we get a lot of pressure to get over it. You know, when are you going to start dating again? Uh, When's the old you going to come back? And we, we have a lot of pressure to, instead of going down into the dark pre- period, just pop back up and say, oh, I don't want to go there. I'm just going to stay happy and I'm going to be strong. But I think those are all really distorted perspectives when there's so much wisdom to be gained by allowing yourself to be undone. The phoenix has to burn down to the ashes before something new arises. So there's, there's a wonderful death teacher and Buddhist abbot named Joan Halifax. And she says that death is a blessed catastrophe. And I think that paradox speaks to what you're saying about, even in your darkest time, there was gratitude and joy. If death is met well, and I'm saying literal death and symbolic deaths, if those are met well, we feel incredible love and so let's say in in the death of a person someone dies in our family if we meet that well and 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 use the kind of ritual processes i'm using or whatever practice your ritual processes come from we're really we really feel the love we feel the love we have for the person who's going the person who's going feels incredibly loved we feel the love of our community around us we feel the truth of what's present and people are just cracked open by how beautiful it is at the same time. It is so excruciatingly painful that they feel like they're being cracked in a different way. It's the same cracking and we have to make space for it.
0: So what are some like, (laughs) it's funny because this podcast was very much created. I feel like out of this need that I had when I was going through that period of my life of, really looking for some sort of practical resource or guidance or like, okay, I'm in this really dark period. Like, what do I do here? You know, I'm fine with being here, but like, help me figure out what to do here. And, um, you know, this, this podcast and the conversations I have, I think were me trying to be that resource maybe for someone else. Um, so I'm curious what, when people are in that space, obviously we're not telling them to get over it. Um, but what are some tools or or, uh, rituals or um, just sort of, you know, practices that you that you recommend that people do when they're in that space?
1: That is the heart of the work I do. So the way I imagine it is, you know, a a circle with a line dividing it from three o'clock to nine o'clock. And we go down below, the top half is bright, the bottom half is dark. This journey down below, we go down, 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 till we're at the very bottom of the circle, and then slowly we start to turn around and come up the other side. So the first thing is to recognize that you have to go down a long way before you can come up. And as you're going down, what's happening is things that used to be true are no longer true you don't live with your husband anymore. You can't go visit your mother because she's died. You know, all these experiences in that were true. You had a certain picture of who you were in the world. That's not true anymore. And so what we have to do as we're going down is find ways to allow what's no longer true to, to let it go. So those are, those can be larger ritual practices or smaller ritual practices. Sometimes it's, you know, I just, I just um, worked with a woman whose husband had died maybe six months earlier, and for various reasons, it was kind of soon, but she knew she had to do it. She was selling their house and moving to a smaller house, so that movement of no that that old house was no longer true for her. She didn't live there. She had to let it go. So we des- designed some rituals to really register. It's not just selling a house; that is a symbolic goodbye to a part of who she was. So she sold the house, the signing of the document. She really, as she signed that document, she really just said an internal prayer saying, okay, I let go of this. It breaks my heart to let go of it, but I let go of it. And then when it was all done, she went to the river and she took the key to the house and she threw it in the river. And that symbolic action is, okay, I really let go of this. And then she has to let go of something else and let go of something else and let go of something else. We have to continue to let go all the way down and anything we can do to honor on the outside what's happening on the inside. That's what a ritual gesture is, like throwing the key in the river, throwing a wedding ring in the river. That says my body agrees with the fact that this is gone and I release it, you know, or I burn something or I grieve something we have to let all the parts that are no longer true go and as they as we let them go we go further and further and further and we don't know who we are because we've let everything go but we have to let a lot go before there's space for the new to come so you go down 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 letting go letting go by yourself with community with support different ways different processes then you start coming up the other side You know you're not at the bottom anymore. You can't quite see the light yet, but you just take little steps towards what's new. Oh, this person died. Now I'm I'm single now. I think I'm going to join the choir that I could never join when I was with them. So I'm going to go traveling or maybe I'm going to take up yoga. These new things build. So a big part of the practical steps are understanding that there has to be a lot of loss and learning to be present to and actually let go of what's gone. And loss can be traumatic. It often is. Um, And one of the ways that trauma happens is in our nervous system, it's experienced as too much, too fast. Suddenly, bam, 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 bam. Everything you thought about who you were in your life was is gone. So one of the ways to kind of soften that is just to be with one part at a time okay i'm just getting i'm just going to acknowledge this part and then i'm going to acknowledge this part and then i live a while more and acknowledge this part so it's slowing things down and really letting your soul and your inner world be the guide to how fast you move through it without having any external expectations that it should be a certain speed
0: yeah yeah, it's. It, I feel like it must feel, I think it certainly did for me, like when there is any sort of a death that we think that that's the only death that we're going to have to deal with and that it's often so compounded by the death of this sort of like sparks, the death of this, you know, ideal or the death of this lie that we were telling ourselves and they just build and build and build. Um, you know, I always used to say that it was like, there was the death of myself, but then almost more traumatic felt like I couldn't then go back into the world into those same places or to those same people and have them sort of embrace me, you know, as this new person, it was like, Oh, you know, maybe those people or those, those worlds or those groups who are what sort of kept me from myself in the first place. And like now all of these things I thought about the world have died too. And, uh, I'm assuming the, the people you work with, like it, feels, it feels like such a disappearance and like an erasure of just all forms of reality.
1: In, in grief therapy, the term for that is the assumptive world, the loss of the assumptive world. It's hmm. everything you understood to be true, everything you just took for granted about who you were, how the world was, and how it worked. And it can be shattered really quickly. And the image I often see when I work with people, I get a lot of visual images, is a kind of you know, when you're making gingerbread cookies, you roll out the dough, you take the gingerbread cookie cutter, you cut out the person shape, and there's the shape of the cookie, and there's the shape of the hole. It's like the the person changes shape, but the hole, which is what everyone expected you to be, the, the people around you, it doesn't change shape. And suddenly you, you don't fit the hole that people held for you anymore. Mm. And it it's one more layer of compounded uh, disorientation and loss. And so in my experience working with people, there are a couple of things that happen. One is that the people, the people fall away as you let go of who you were and the people and patterns and life behaviors that were associated with and kept that old person in that shape and place. If you're really true to your soul's journey and you, those don't serve you anymore, They may have served you fine at one point, but not anymore. You let go of them and you start to move into something new. Two things happen. One is people are afraid that they're going to lose everything and everybody. But what I've seen over and over is that the people who really love you, the people whose relationship is true and sustaining, will follow you through. The people who don't are the ones who just don't fit you anymore. And... So people are afraid they're going to lose everything. It feels like everything, but you don't lose the things that really are true to you. And as you're going down, you think you're just going to keep losing and losing, losing because when you're on a downhill slide, all you see is darkness. When you come around the corner, you start to see glimmers of light. But that that loss of the world around you, and really, you know, I just worked with a woman the other day. Her husband died very suddenly a week and a half ago. And, She said, I feel like I've died. Everything, there her world was ripped from her instead of her making an evolutionary step towards something new. And it's really true. She did die. The person she was in relationship with him, married for 47 years, is dead. And so she has to not only mourn his loss, but mourn the loss of who she was.
0: Hmm. I'm curious how you... Because I don't know how to talk about this, so I'd love your advice. Um, (laughs) I feel like after I, I went through this process on my own, it became a lot easier and almost innate and natural for me to approach many other difficult periods in my life or difficult situations or certain kinds of traumas in a way that was a lot more... Kind of like open to listening and learning, like, okay, so what's this gonna be about? you know what what's this here to to teach me? um and I think it sort of like moves into this weird space of like everything happens for a reason, which feels very dismissive of the actual pain and suffering that goes on, um but at the same time, I, I know that like you know, finding that meaning in something is really valuable sort of imperatively so um so i'm curious how you talk about that with people or maybe you don't need to because they just sort of know it innately but that space of like we can hold the the pain and suffering together with finding the meaning and the lessons here
1: before we started recording you and i were talking about paradox and i think that's really at the core of this that The dominant Western culture is very binary, very dualistic. It says this is good or this is bad. When in fact, reality is so much more nuanced and so much more complex. Joan Halifax says, blessed catastrophe. Is that good or bad? Uh, It's both. It's incredibly beautiful and incredibly painful. Giving birth to a child, incredibly beautiful, incredibly painful. So helping people... Say that it can understand that it can be good and bad at the same time is a big part of it. And the uh, sorry, I have to confess the dog just walked in, kind of distracted me. <laughs> so I, I had to <laughs> put myself back on this. We're talking about um that having been through it once, you have some more skills to go through it again. And I think that's a really powerful example of learning that transformed you. So in dominant Western culture, we tend to like the idea of a world that travels in a straight line and is always getting better. Uh, we don't like the idea of aging. We have get the whole anti-aging stuff in there. We don't like the idea of getting sick. We want corporate profits to keep continuing. We want to keep extracting resource and logging and fishing and just have everything go up, 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 up. When in fact nothing in nature goes up and up and up and up and up everything in nature goes in a circle and what I'm thinking probably you learned in that process and what I see my clients learn is so they go down into the bottom into the darkness and they come up the other side you come up into the light things are going great for a while and then suddenly boom you go down again and that is the journey of the soul and What you get when you learn how to do that well and when you're able to be present to it as it happens, you actually develop the muscle of knowing what this feels like. Like, oh no, am I going to go through this again? Oh, it hurt so much last time. But I actually know that if I just stick with it and don't fight the process too much and let myself feel and grieve and let go, I do come out the other side. Because when you're going down, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, like there's a corner in the tunnel or something. But once you've done it a couple of times, you can trust. The way I, I mean, what it is, is trusting that deep archetypal initiatory wisdom in your soul. That If you actually let the process move you, something new happens. And spring always follows winter. just happens. So we learn that, And, and if you've done it a few times, not only do you get a taste for it, and you sort of know this is what it's going to be like. But you also develop in your own energetic structures and your own soul structures um uh, 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 kind of resonance of what that is so that you're more able to be with other people when they're going through it. There's a beautiful definition of compassion. Compassion means, you know, the etymology of the world is to To feel with passions. Feeling calm is with. So to feel with. But another version of that is, and it says the same thing, but I think in more explicit terms, to not be afraid of someone else's pain. So you can feel them, feel with them when they're in pain. And so as you made that journey, and as each of us make the journey and continue to, if we do it well, we become better able to not be afraid of other people's pain because we've learned not to be afraid of our own pain. Hmm.
0: And I suppose actual physical death is the one thing that we can't practice or get better at or get used to necessarily. Um, and, and maybe this sort of rational, maybe it's not totally rational, but there is something about being able to think through a difficult transition Um because I've been there before, I've been somewhere similar before and knowing where I'm going to be on the other side. Um, I assume a lot of, you know, conversation that goes on with you and your clients likely has a lot to do with the not knowing where someone goes when they die or if they're going anywhere and probably the human desire to sort of control and rationalize and ask questions like why and stuff and um, how do you engage in those types of of conversations
1: i think that desire to rationalize and know and control is not necessarily human it's western Mm. i think there are lots of other human approaches that make a lot more space for mystery don't know don't know and yet that's okay we like to know we like it all added up and spreadsheets and columns and totals and all that stuff and and i think that western tendency is what makes this so difficult for us so you know and you also said something interesting about you know is is this a rational process to think through how we're doing this (laughs) it's, it's it's a really good question because the brain the mind our mental intellectual selves are not sufficient to take us through this process.
2: Hmm.
1: It's our hearts and our souls and our psyches, our relational selves. That meaning, meaning is is not rational. Love is not rational. Those are the things that take us through it. But at the same time, there is an educational process where we learn, and it becomes something new becomes possible. The soul's language is really imagery. Imagery, poetry, music, art. And a lot of what I do with people is paint pictures. Right? I painted the picture of going down around the circle. There are lots of these images. And the way I see it, images are strong. They're symbols. Symbols are, are images that are encoded with a lot of energy. A number is rational. That means there's a ratio. One is always one. A symbol is non-rational this symbol has an infinite number of interpretations and so the symbols carry a lot for us so our learning symbolically and learning in images is what gives us these tools but having to deal with the mystery is is a big part of that and i'm not sure if there's a question you're asking so if you are let me know and i can go further onto that in terms of where it is we go like what happens after we die because that's a big part of what i work with with people
0: Yeah, no, I'd love to go further in that. I mean, obviously, it's not a question we can necessarily answer, but I, in your work, because you've been around this so much, and not only just people who are experiencing the death of others, but those who are dying. I'm assuming, right? Learning a Mm -hmm. lot from them as well. Um, Yeah, I would. I would love to hear more about how you sort of think or conceptualize these ideas.
1: Um, Again, I'm I'm not sure they're thinking or concepts, but I'm going to try and put them in words. They're more like experiences or something um yeah so here's but it's true we don't have any other better language to say so no i appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> yeah it's we're fumbling around because english doesn't even give us tools to no, talk No, i know
0: those. words are yeah fail me often <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah yeah i think if we were fluent in navajo we could probably speak yeah. about these with much more grace <laughs> true. that's yeah. true yeah um so here's here's how i hold it that it's a fundamental law of existence that energy is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes form. And that happens in so many places in nature, right? The mm, water condenses, rains, collects, evaporates, condenses. It just goes around. It changes form. I can give you a million examples of that. And so why should we be any different? We... Come uh, at a, if we imagine there's some aspect of us, soul, consciousness, spirit, you can call it whatever you want, that comes in at conception, somewhere around there. The physical elements of the earth coalesce around us, build our bodies. We move through our lives. Those bodies are finite. Eventually, at some point, earlier or later, the bodies can't hold us anymore. But there's some energetic aspect of us that continues. And that, I think, is a, a sort of a universal experience. And it is a universal experience. Every culture that understands that, and basically it's every culture except dominant Western culture through time has understood that. So it gives us a pretty good sense that maybe people were onto something that we don't quite get, mm-hmm. has, a, has a set of pictures to explain what that, how that happens. It, it happens energetically, but we only can speak in pictures and stories. So we make a set of stories. Different cultures have different pictures and uh, articulations of what that map is. The the articulation that I use is based a little bit on um, well, it painting a picture. This idea that we're living on one side of a river, and in death we cross that river and we move to a village on the other side of the river. Again, it's just a picture. It's not not necessarily literally what happens but we know that everybody who died before us goes somewhere and we're probably going to go where they are so we we create that picture and there's more complexity to that but i also draw a lot from work in transpersonal psychology so the whole vast study around near death experiences um dreams around death and dying uh, really deep and really rigorous research into reincarnation and children's memories of life before birth and um this amazing phenomena called a shared death experience where when someone's at the bedside of someone dying more often than you would think there's a kind of opening of the veil and the healthy person who's at the bedside starts to experience a little bit of the other side of the veil that they didn't mm. even know about and but these experiences are all very similar so All those experiences together, for me, give a picture that says there's something else and there's enough uniformity in people's experiences of it. It's not rational. We can't measure it. We can't replicate it. But it nevertheless is real, in my experience, that there is something that happens. And so a big part of what I do is validate for people with a framework what they already know. My clients tend to say, I, I, I really think something happens. I think I don't disappear. I think I'm still here. I have experience of my mother or my dog coming back to me or my partner after they died. But they don't have a, they don't have a conceptual framework. That's where the conceptual part comes in. They don't have an image to hold all that. And they've never had it validated. When I speak at big events, you know, sometimes there's two or three people, hundred people in the audience. And I say, how many people have had some experience of connecting with someone, animal or human, who they love, who's died. And I would say 60% of the audience puts their hand up. And then I say, how many of you never tell anybody about this? And the vast majority (laughs) keep their hand up. It's happening, we just don't talk about it. And often people come to me and they say, oh, my brother, my dog, my somebody died, and I really want connection with them. And a huge part of what I do is teach them what that can look like and how to be open to it and often how to actually acknowledge that it's already happening, but they don't have a lens to see it. So they'll say, well, I had this dream, but, and then we go dig into the dream and I go, Oh yeah. Oh, actually that was exactly what I was looking for. So it's a big question with lots of tentacles, but this sense that we continue and we continue in a different form and Dying is, um, is the process of adjusting to what that new form is and becoming in a new relationship with the people who are still in physical bodies because the, the body dies, but the relationship doesn't die. The love doesn't go away. We just need to figure out how to be in relationship across this river.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when I was, oh, I must've been in my late teens, And I had an experience like that for the first time and it was complete, like I couldn't describe it in words. I was with people at the time who were elsewhere, but I didn't tell them. I I think I I did call, I think both my parents just sort of like, what the heck was that? And of course it was entirely energetic. And Mm -hmm. I just think something that I was totally naive to, um, but yet when it happened, felt so clear. was like I knew exactly what it was I was feeling um yeah but I agree I think a lot of the western rhetoric and and culture just doesn't have these types of spaces um I'd love to sort of broaden the conversation right now both to community um and also I guess what's going on in the world, but maybe specifically our country at the moment. Um, You have a quote on your website that says, it takes a village to die well. Uh, And I would really love to hear you expand upon that and sort of the role of community as it relates to death.
1: Um, uh, A teacher who's been really important in my work is a man named Stephen Jenkinson and that that phrase is a little bit of a riff off something he said which is that the mark of a good death is that it's a village making event um Mm. people often cite that to me but it's his (laughs) i always try to give him credit for that because that is really um those are my marching orders that tells me what i need to do and how i understand that is we cannot control so much about death We can't control how it happens, how old we are, is it painful, is it gory, is it tragic, is it violent, all those things. We cannot control those things. And so if we have a definition that says a good death is when I'm 90, lying in my bed, I just close my eyes and drift away. If that's the only frame we have for a good death, well, there's no way we can make that happen. What we can do is meet death as it comes in a way that creates village the mark of a good death is that it's a village making event how do we create connection uh, another great line is from laurie anderson um whose husband lou reed big both beautiful amazing musicians and this is a line the article was in rolling stone magazine so i love that as a spiritual mm. uh, text yeah. she yeah. said yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens all over she said i i've come to appreciate that the purpose of death is the release of love. I'd say that's that's saying the same thing that Stephen Jenkinson says. We, if we can deepen relationship in a really true, profound, connecting way, then death is not a bug in the system. It's not a problem, a mistake. It's a fundamental opportunity to grow and connect more closely. And so all of that comes around to what you're saying about community. That often what happens in the dying process, and and whether it's a sudden death or um, more expected maybe through illness or aging death, is if you imagine a series of concentric circles, the dying person is the one dropping, the pebble dropping through the lake. Everybody in their world is around them. Their spouse, partner, child, parents you know, and then it goes out and out and out and out and out. Often what happens is you go out a couple of layers, and then there's a big gap between that inner island, which gets isolated, and everybody else in the community. It's too much work for those that inner island to support the dying person. They need that community around them. And so the ritual work I do is often about creating the energetic channels so that the love can flow into those people So they're supported, but also what they're experiencing can flow out as teaching to the people who are a little further out, not so deeply impacted, but they learn. Because that's where we learn how to die and how to support the people we love as they die. By being with it as it happens, maybe it's slightly arms, legs from us. So when it really happens close to us, we've seen it a few times. That's what I didn't see with my dad. It was nothing, 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 nothing. Suddenly, boom, I'm in the ICU with him. It was too shocking. I'd never been exposed to it with other people. So all the work that I do is about creating the channels for that love to flow. And it's on this side of the river, and it's between this side of the river and the other side of the river. There's a kind of reboot of village that happens when someone dies. Our ancestors, we connect with them a bit more. The dead who've died before are a little more present. We sort of reboot that. So whatever we can do to help people be present to the grief is what allows them to be present to the love. So you got to make space to be able to hold the grief. And that's what allows the love to flow.
0: Yeah. I feel like a lot of this must also have to do with the sort of grave misunderstanding about the difference between grief and depression, um, that, uh, you know, I think depression comes from an inability to grieve, um, and is not grief itself. Uh, and I, I wonder too, I think about my generation specifically a lot, um, because I feel like not that there haven't been other generations that have experienced trauma. There certainly has been. Um, but as far as those who are alive right now, it's interesting to reflect on like you know, that 9-11 happened when a lot of us were quite young, but old enough to know that it happened. Um, School shootings, um, economic collapses, the environmental collapse. I think whether we've uh, chosen to or not, we've had a lot of trauma and grief in our lives. And I'm sort of curious as to how Um, those experiences might allow us to be this sort of shepherd, uh, in the world right now where, you know, I have this podcast called a millennial's guide to saving the world. I don't actually know if I'm going to save or that any of us are going to save much of anything so much as that we might understand how to be more present in some of these darker places and some of these spaces of grief. And maybe, you know help, you know, maybe part of the problem is that we like depression, I feel like is such a stuck, like stagnant position. Um, but gr- like moving through grief is a, is a process. There's movement there. Things are flowing. Um, uh, and I, I'm just interested to see, especially at a time like this, how, how might that um, familiarity that we have with those types of feelings allow us to confront you know, some or many of the darknesses that surround us and like, how can we help move and push these things forward without being afraid of them?
1: I think that is the question of our time. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. Unprocessed grief can, can stagnate and manifested depression for sure. I think there are also lots of other factors that play into depression. So for someone who's experiencing that, there's a lot going on there, but that can certainly be one of them. I think that unprocessed grief, there's no doubt about that, has it kind of festers in us. I talked about the the circle and going down into the darkness, and how people go through. We go through those journeys individually and a relationship. There are all these things that burn away. And, and especially at the beginning, when we're just coming down, like from three o'clock to four o'clock, if you imagine you're looking in a straight line, if you look, all you see is dark, 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 down to infinity. And it's not till you get around to 5:30 when you start to see a little peak of light. And so what's happening, and what's happening particularly for people of your generation is that that's not just happening at an individual level, but, oh, I've lost my relationship, and who am I now that I'm not with this partner and these friends? It's happening at a global, not even cultural, but global level. Hmm. When we look at the future, nothing that we relied on can be seen. And I'm my early 50s. I'm, uh, I... When I look to the end of my life, I can imagine a little bit of continuity. But when you and my nieces are in their 20s, when when that generation, when your generation looks forward, there's there's no light to be seen. And so it doesn't mean that there is no light. It just means that there might be a lot of darkness before there's light. And I think what your gen- generation is being asked to do is be present to the dark. I have a really powerful teacher named Joanna Macy, and she talks about the fact that we're hospicing the end of one culture at the same time we're midwifing the birth of another. And hospicing and midwifing are both intense experiences. Dying and being born are both intense experiences. And I have a picture of the map of what happens when an individual dies and how we can go down and up and around. We are on such a huge global map of that that none of us have any idea what it can be but what I do know is that systems theory tells us that things can they they get further and further and further and further and further into equilibrium and then suddenly they can make a radical shift in a way we had never expected and that no matter how awful things are right now, spring always follows winter, and so we're in that dark time. And your generation is really being asked to be present to what's dying, and also plant seeds and nurture what's coming without knowing what that looks like. And it's a—I uh, I, I, get—I get really moved by what an opportunity you have, and what an incredibly difficult thing it is, and being incredibly grateful for those of you who chose to come in to take this on. It's an incredible role to play in the evolution of humanity.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like that. I, I, I'd love if you could talk too, because sometimes I feel a little guilty or like, I think a lot of us struggle with how to feel or if we're supposed to feel or allowed to feel a level of hope and optimism. It's like, on the one hand, I'm always like, I don't want people to get hurt. You know, I, I, I don't want people to die and for all this pain to be caused. But on the other hand, given my own personal experience, given what, I don't know where, however I came into this world, whatever my sort of past life ancestral path was, I also feel like I don't know, I don't think there is another way to initiate any sort of major transformation without there being immense pain and suffering and grief. Obviously, what we're talking about in a microcosm, but expanded outward as far as culture and society and humanity goes. Um, So uh, since so many of my listeners are people my age who I think struggle with a lot of that guilt of feeling a sense of gratitude that we're in this darkness um what might you say to us to help us sort of stay afloat in that way
1: i'd like to understand more about the guilt Hmm. the guilt a, a feeling guilty for having a sense of gratitude is that because that guilt goes along with the fact that there are people and beings and and wild places suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think it probably, at least for me invokes a lot of evokes a lot of questions around privilege as well. Like that perhaps my suffering won't be as intense as someone else's suffering. So that even if we do go through some sort of intense transformation that all I'll have less of it. And so therefore I shouldn't feel grateful that the transit, the the transition is happening at all um, because I'm not the one with who's going to bear the the greatest burden. Maybe.
1: Lots. Okay. That helps me a lot to understand it. Um, We are going through an enormous transition. The outcome is not guaranteed. It may be annihilation. Sixth Great Extinction: Meteorites hit the Earth; dinosaurs, you know, go extinct. It may be that this is such an incredible shake-up that everything, us, all complex life, everything goes. So, um, it's important to go in it knowing that the future is not guaranteed. It can't go on the way it was, and holding that there is light at the end of the tunnel is um is the only thing that's going to get us through but that light may be it may take a thousand years for that light to come back it may take much longer than our generation or even the generations of people we know so um there's a kind of um exhilaration or and maybe like um I keep coming back to Joan Halifax. A blessed catastrophe. That's what I hear you saying. This is this is awful, but it also has opportunity in it. And we have to hold the possibility that it could be awful, but it also has great opportunity. So that's part of it in terms of the gratitude, and and even from everything you've said, I I I can hear that there's gratitude in your voice, but there's also grief about what's being lost. Both those things. The guilt around how those of us with privilege experience this as opposed to those with less, less privilege and and who are more on the front lines. And we can find a thousand examples of that. That goes back to the bigger picture. We talked earlier about mystery and that everything happens for a reason, but not to use that dismissively. As humans, we can only see so much. We only have our experience, our eyes, human consciousness, the, the lifespan of a human life. But the bigger picture is so much larger than us. And if we can trust, you know, when, when I work with people who've had terminal diagnoses, often the the phrase that rings for them is, instead of asking why is this happening to me ask why is this happening for me what is there something in this pain that and that says there's something mysterious i can't understand it but maybe i can trust that there is a bigger learning to happen so to lean into that mystery of yeah there if this is happening perhaps there is an evolutionary reason for it and the other thing is to think about trauma and that when hard things happen, when traumatic things happen, the, the, the measurement is not how big the thing is on the outside, it's how big it is in our system. And those of us who have privilege and food on the table and rooms over our heads and all sorts of opportunity and privilege are still facing this grief and to honor that it breaks our hearts. It's, it's living in our nervous systems as trauma. And if we try and diminish it and say there's some kind of accounting my grief is not as bad as that person, so mine doesn't count that diminishes our ability to actually be in service to those who are being hit more, more hard by, it, being hit harder by it, that we have to honor our own grief. We have to honor that it is breaking our hearts. To, to look at the world today, to look at where the future goes, there's no one on the planet who isn't being traumatized by that. And if those of us who have privilege can honor our own trauma and make a space for it, we can integrate it more easily so that we can then be more useful to support the larger picture. But there's no... Uh, that's where it's not rational. You can't add it up and say the sum of my column is less than some of that column, so it doesn't matter. it It hurts us all.
0: Yeah, I I actually I think I spoke about something on a recent podcast about there was a friend of mine who was really struggling with with identifying with and acknowledging any sort of trauma that she'd had in her childhood because she would look to her mom's life or her mom's mom's life. And it was a lot worse and um, that there was this guilt about acknowledging those things. And I sort of said, well, what if like the trauma was reduced enough and the knowledge was expanded enough to where like in this life you were like, you're the one who gets to metabolize that, you know, you're the one that gets to, um, to heal it and not pass it on. And, you know, to, to, to deny that, as you said, to walk away from that as a privilege is probably, you know, the worst thing that we could do. It's not, helping anyone in the past or anyone in the future to deny the tools and the space that might that we might have been given in order to help this transformation move along
1: yeah i think that i think what you're saying is very true that there's a um there's the western understanding that we're all separate individual parts You and I are different than the person down the street and the person living in the homeless shelter. We're all different. We're separate. When in fact, that's not true in the slightest. Everything is connected. We might look separate because we have edges around our skin and around our lives, but we are all connected. And so if we're all connected, which you can make a thousand arguments about why that's true, then not only does the trauma flow between when I see a forest clear cut, that's a part of me. And so feeling trauma for that is a normal, natural, healthy response, feeling grief and heartbreak. So not only do we feel the trauma of those who are quote-unquote separate from us, but the flip side of that is that when we do healing work in ourselves, it also flows into the larger system. So that's that's not to be read to say, well, I'll just look after myself and then I'll make everything else better. It's to say that if I can process grief and hold myself as part of a larger whole, my processing grief and my learning how to process grief starts to be of service to a larger whole. I also have some responsibilities to, to be um, accountable and those are other actions we need to take, but that healing ourselves is healing the whole and, and to, you know, having so many times with, um, around personal death, there's so many links between it. So I just worked with a woman whose cat died she lived alone. Her cat was her primary relationship, 20 years with this cat. And she had this incredible conversational connection with this cat and the cat died and she was gutted. So the pain of the loss of that deep relationship was compounded by this voice that said, It's not as bad as what's happening to other people in the world. Look at the protests on the street. Mine is not as bad. And that voice that says, What's happening to me isn't bad was getting in the way of her doing her own healing. Just acknowledge what's experiencing what you're experiencing in your soul and what's true for you, and then you can do the healing work and then you can step out.
0: Right. Yeah. The sort of unofficial tagline to my podcast is fix yourself to fix the world, which I sometimes yes. have a hard time explaining because people think that, like, I, I feel so opposed to like, well, I'm just going to go off living in the woods and, you know, not deal with anyone else. It's, it's not selfish at all that there is this sort of direct energetic correlation between our own personal healing and what's happening collectively outside of us. So thank you for. I would say it's actually selfless, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's-
1: it's, it challenges the notion that there is an individual self. Mm. It says work I do on me work. I do in my intimate circles has repercussions out as long as I understand that there are no boundaries between us.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like I got totally lost in the vortex of it, which was nice. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, if you could tell the listeners where to find you and to learn more about the work that you do. And then I also ask everyone who I have on to recommend um, one or two books that were really um, instrumental or sort of transformative for you in your life. What would those books be?
1: Ooh, good. Okay. Um so soul soulpassages.ca s o u l p a s s a g e s. People misspell that in all sorts of funny ways. .ca because I'm <laughs> Canadian um, is where you'll find me. I've got links there to pretty active Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channels. Um, so those are all easy to find. And uh, I also have a. In terms of books, the short answer is. I have a, if you go to my website and join the mailing list, you get a free holistic death resource kit, which is a downloadable set of books, Mm -hmm. videos, groups, all that kind of stuff. So that's a big bunch of great books. Um, But given our conversation about um, the bigger cultural death and rebirth, because that's not really the focus of those books there, I would say Joanna Macy's work, World as Lover, World as Self uh, really amazing. And another book she has on, uh, it's called coming back to life. The work that reconnects. They, they are both framing of the bigger picture, plus really practical applied tools to use in it. And, um, one of the books that rocked my world, it's a dense read. It's called dark night, early dawn. And, uh, Chris Beche, Bache, B A C H E, is the author. He's a philosophy professor who has done decades of therapeutic LSD work and so has, and, and decades of deep Tibetan Buddhist practice. And he names the collective death and rebirth process we're going through better than anyone else. So mm-hmm. you got to really sit yourself down with a cup of coffee and a pen <laughs> to read his book, but it's probably the last 15 years it's had more impact on me than any other
0: book amazing thank you I'll have to check that out you're welcome. <laughs> I know it's kind
1: of a challenge like yeah. if you're up to this it's really yeah. good
0: yeah amazing well thank you so much again for taking the time I really appreciate it
1: well you're welcome I I want to really thank you for for taking a difficult experience for, that happened to you and turning it into a gift to the world. I mean, that's that's part of that agnistiori cycle. That's, when it works well, that's what we do. Hard things make us stronger. And also for creating a space and uh, a conversation place for supporting your generation through this. Because I really meant what I said before. That question you asked is the question of the moment. If we're going to make ourself, our way through this, your generation is going to lead the way. And so anything that those of us who are a little further down the line can do to support that I uh, is amazing but watching it happen and I see it happen in so many ways and places of folks of that age. it's I just have really, really deep respect and appreciation for you and, and folks listening to this.
0: Well thank you. yeah, thanks for providing some of the the tools that we need for sure.
1: <laughs> Happy to.
0: Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I am going to play you out today with a rendition of Kol Nidre. Um, just because, you know, I want to keep the <clears throat> the death and mourning a theme here. Um, it was funny. I, uh, I was raised Jewish. I had a bat mitzvah. I should probably talk more about that on the podcast. I think I've only mentioned it a time or two, my experience in that religious realm. Um, My family was definitely not super religious. I feel very much, I feel Jewish in the sense of tradition and heritage, but not so much religion. And uh, when I was young, my mother dragged us to temple for uh, the High Holy Day services, and I really hated all of them. Uh, It was just boring beyond belief and it didn't make any sense to me and was totally void of meaning. However, there was one service at the start of Yom Kippur called Kol Nidre. And I think I very vaguely remember my mom saying, you know, the High Holy Days are all about forgiveness and for the sins we've committed and about, you know, making good and starting again in the new year. But Kol Nidre is just the time to be sad, is the time to mourn, it's the time to sit in the painful emotions. And that was always my favorite service, and we would go and there would be someone who would play the cello and would play this beautiful beautiful version of Kol Nidre, which always just hit me in the deepest places, even as a kid. Recently, I started listening to this piece again, and um, it affects me even more profoundly now. And is one of those things where it's like, I think somewhere deep inside, I always knew what I needed to do. I always knew what was right. I always knew what emotions felt like the ones I needed to pursue, what spaces felt right. And uh, that was definitely confirmed to me in this case. So, yeah, this is a song that obviously has a lot of different meanings for everyone. But for me, it's about really like, I guess, especially because I was raised Jewish, it feels so ancestral to me, this music that my ancestors have been listening to this for generations and it's such a profound connection for me to the past and to feel what they felt and to grieve what they were not able to grieve so yeah feel the weight of this one just melt into it love you all talk to you next time